Welcome to a joint production of the Expert Speak from the Florida Psychiatric Society and the Palm Beach County Medical Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Half of our population, because of their gender, experience menstrual cycles. When the cycles stop, it is known as menopause. But despite that it is obviously so common, it can still be at times quite the challenge. Maureen Wellahan is a gynecologist in Palm Beach County, Florida, and she has offered to spend some time with us today talking about the many aspects of menopause. My pleasure for such an important topic. Let's begin with the simple. From a medical perspective, what is menopause? So by definition, menopause is simply the cessation of the menstrual cycle for one year, period. That's it. Is it also matched by laboratory tests? I hear about so many women say they're perimenopausal and their estrogen is still too high or there seems to be some predictor. Can we tell in advance when it's going to happen? Women love blood tests. Everybody wants a test to find out, am I there? But in fact, the true definition of menopause is simply one year without a menstrual cycle. Now, regarding the blood test, there are blood tests, laboratory tests, and FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. That number goes up, and if the number is above 26 in the usual laboratory, that is in the menopausal range. But really, that number goes up years before the cessation of the menses, because that number is the hormone that's trying to make that ovary that's waxing and waning to get more estrogen out of it. So you really can't use the laboratory test. Where might I use that? If a 30-year-old doesn't have a period for a year, I'm going to use that test to say, have my ovaries failed or is this something else that's causing this alteration? But for the most part, in the appropriate age woman, say 45 and over, if she hasn't had a period in a year and there's no other causes, it's menopause. Is there an average age, so to speak, of menopause in American women or women throughout the world? In fact, there is. In the U.S., the average age is 51 years old. However, it's a huge genetic component. So when women are trying to get from me, when do you think it'll be? And uh, they're still having regular menstrual cycles at 51. I say, well, when did your mother go through menopause? Or when did your older sister go through menopause? Because if mom and older sis went through at 55, then the chances are this young lady, too, will not go through until she's 55, unless she has habits that may take her there sooner, such as cigarette smoking. Cigarette smokers go through menopause earlier than non-smokers. And is this fairly true across the world? There are a lot of women, probably more women, living in poverty in the world than with the luxury of the food and general health that we have here. Does it vary with the nutritional status? We've looked at thin women versus obese women and so forth, and it doesn't appear to have a huge influence. However, I suspect that in poverty-stricken areas and poor nutrition that you would think that those women may go through menopause earlier or have an earlier ovarian failure just because of the overall general health of their body. Are there a set group of, how shall I say, the standard symptoms that signify menopause? People always talk about hot flashes, but what do you look for? What's the cluster of symptoms outside of the menstrual cycles themselves becoming less frequent or stopping? What do you look for? Usually the discussion begins when she is starting to skip menstrual cycles and is concerned about what's happening. And then I ask, are you having any night sweats? Are you having hot flushes? They generally begin as night sweats, usually 1 to 2 o'clock in the morning. 
then they start to proceed more frequently and then during the day. A lot of women will have anxiety and palpitations and it's most confusing to a lot of women who have never had a mood symptom in their life. So now they're worried that something's wrong with their heart because they're feeling these palpitations. So low energy, low sexual desire, fatigue, those are all commonly reported in women in the perimenopause and early menopause. Later on, as menopause progresses, it's more things like vaginal dryness and painful sex. Do the other symptoms disappear? Usually it's the first two to eight years after menopause where the hot flashes can be the most intense, and they tend to fade over time. Now remember, some women never get hot flashes. I think a lot of that is what they anticipate and their own personality type, how they look at their body and the changes that are occurring. There's a little bit of personality component that goes into the symptoms like in everything we do. But vaginal dryness starts to come on around year four or five, but then that is chronic and progressive. But there are women who have hot flashes well into their 80s. Interesting. So what causes the hot flashes and what can we do about it? The hot flashes are a mystery to most. The general consensus would be a change or a narrowing of the thermoregulatory system. So where we used to all be able to tolerate a pretty hot temperature before we sweat and a pretty low temperature before we shiver, that spectrum narrows. So it doesn't take much of a temperature elevation to make us hot and it doesn't take much of a cold or a cool temperature to make us have these chills. And a lot of women will tell you before menopause that they have the opposite, that they're cold all the time, especially at the end of the workday. The general thought is this change in the thermoregulatory system that causes these flushes. Of course, things can bring them on, such as cubicles, tight faces, stress, anxiety. Those are the things that can provoke a hot flash in a person who was relatively calm moments before. What about diet? What about weight? A lot of obese women will say, I have hot flashes. They like to tell me what they have rather than their symptom. They don't give me the diagnosis. Really, in my obese patients, a lot of times they're just sweating. They're hot. They're wearing their own parka all day. So they have their own insulation. They're going to be a little hotter than usual. They forget that when they eat carbohydrates as a snack at bedtime, that that's an instant energy burner. And so they're going to metabolize those carbs rather quickly and they're going to sweat into the early evening. I try and tell them to change their nighttime snack if they have to have one to a protein snack, one that's not going to stimulate insulin and one that's not going to generate energy and release heat as a byproduct. Sometimes that information falls on deaf ears, but certainly if you were going to guess, I would say obese women have less hot flashes per se because they make more of their own internal estrogen in the fat cells. So this is estrogen outside of the ovaries, obviously. Right. In our adipose tissue, our fat cells, we have aromatase, which converts testosterone to estrogen. And the menopausal ovaries make testosterone for about two years after the cessation of the estrogen. So that testosterone can be converted into estrogen in the adipose tissue. So the more adipose tissue the patient has, the more likely she's going to push testosterone into estrogen. The problem here becomes that there is no progesterone to protect the lining of the uterus from estrogen stimulation. And so there are the risk factors for uterine cancer, endometrial cancer, which is an estrogen-dependent cancer. We have such an obesity problem in the United States and in the world. I never really connected this to this degree with menstrual cycles and, and menopause. How much of a problem do you see it to be? My concern in the obese population, besides the fact that it's linked to lots of 
cancer risk. There's lots of data out there saying too much sugar in your diet feeds cancer, all those things that we know. It's on your knees and your hips and your back when you're obese. The increased risk for bladder incontinence and leaking. I try and have the discussion about cancer. Listen, you're obese, and while your ovaries stop making estrogen, they're still making testosterone. That testosterone can convert to estrogen in your fat cells and stimulate your uterus. So this can be a risk factor for uterine cancer. So let's fix that today. Sometimes the patients are motivated, and other times it falls on deaf ears. If a woman has a hysterectomy, but her ovaries are left intact, will she continue to have signs of menstrual cycles and a menopause? While the uterus is gone and she no longer bleeds, her ovaries are still having menstrual cycles if she's young. And so sometimes it's really hard to pinpoint when menopause is occurring because we're losing that definition of one year without a period. However, those patients will be able to tell you symptoms, hot flashes, irritability, worsening of mood. And to me, these are the easiest ones to fix because the consequence of giving estrogen to a lady with a uterus that's having symptoms is abnormal bleeding and aggravation from that. Well, this lady isn't going to bleed. So giving her a little trial of low-dose estrogen is perfect in taking care of her symptoms, and we don't have to worry about getting the bleeding. So to me, these are the easy ones to treat. We hear very frequently about bioidentical, synthetic hormones, natural hormones, and it's really attached to the question of when do we use them? Because if we look at ourselves from a purely natural point of view, obviously nature intended for a woman to begin to have a reduction of estrogens and progesterones. And so because we live longer, we want to replace the hormones. What's your thoughts about that? take the second part first. We lived in the old days, if you will. We lived until we were in our 50s. And so the loss of the function of the ovaries was merely a loss of the ability to bear a child. And the women didn't spend much time alive after that. And so it wasn't an issue. Today, women are living a third of their life beyond the menopause. They want to stay energetic. They want to stay healthy. They want to be sexually active, and so it becomes ever so important to have the conversation of whether or not estrogen should be supplemented in these patients to abate their symptoms. Now, it's about the bioidentical and the natural. There's a whole bunch of marketing buzz that cloudies up the issues for the patients. The words natural and bioidentical are really marketing words. They're not really scientific words, but I try and work with the word bioidentical because it means like the body had before. I use estradiol, 17-beta estradiol, which is what the body made before. So I'll give it that. From a cancer standpoint, that whether it's bioidentical or natural or synthetic, that it really it doesn't reduce your risk for breast cancer. It may reduce your risk when we talk about progesterone or progestins. Progestins are the synthetic progesterone-like products, and natural progesterone, quote-unquote, is derived from the wild yam. It appears micronized progesterone or natural progesterone may be less of a risk for breast cancer than the stronger synthetic progestins. No randomized placebo-controlled trials, but some pretty large bodies of evidence. When it comes to estrogen, it's really about mode of delivery that makes it safer or not safer in regards to certain things, but not cancer. So have a discussion with your doc and try not to get wrapped up 
into the bioidentical and natural and marketing part. We touched on a few minutes ago the notion that there are a lot of mood shifts. And many years ago, when actually it was Prozac came out and they began to notice that it was very good for PMS, well, it confused a lot of people because people were saying, how can a serotonin reuptake inhibitor affect something that seems to be a completely different hormonal system, namely PMS symptoms? You know, you're right. Prozac was one of the best things we ever discovered, including PMS, PMDD. As a gynecologist, sometimes there's a fine line between figuring out whether it's a PMDD or a major depression that hasn't been discovered. And so when I prescribe, I don't usually just give them those seven or 10 pills a month. I usually allow it for 30 and let the patient troubleshoot herself. And it's pretty interesting how that all pans out. A lot of times you discover that there's undiagnosed depression there and we fix that. That said, there are two sides to PMS, PMDD. It's the mood component, which is where the fluoxetine or Prozac was hitting, and the physical symptoms, the breast tenderness, the bloating, the headaches, and so forth. In some of the products, they actually showed a cessation of some of the physical symptoms as well. Sometimes we would use a combination of birth control pills to regulate the estrogen and progesterone cycle, and then the mood component to address the mood. Often I empower the patient, do we want to do one, the other, or both? We do know that PMS or PMDD started with the cycling of the hormones, the ups and downs, first the estrogen up, and then the estrogen down and progesterone up, and then they're both down, and then we have a menstrual cycle. They did some similar studies with men where they lowered their testosterone by giving them estrogen, then they released, stopped that, and the testosterone could go back up, and then they gave them estrogen to bring it back down, and they tried to cycle men, and sure enough, they developed PMDD symptoms. So if we can stop cycling with like a birth control pill or something like that, we can help those symptoms, plus add the mood med. And the good news in menopause, no more cycling. So the PMS goes away. Families appreciate that as well. Let's continue the thought because we do have now in psychiatry, in, in, in medicine in general, the ability to add low-dose antipsychotic medications, which augment the antidepressant quality of the medicine, make people feel better. They work. They really do work. But we worry about elevations in prolactin levels. So now we have another variable. Where does prolactin fall into all of this? That's a great question. I, and I just saw a patient with this the other day, so it's funny that we're talking about it. Probably not as frequent as you would think. So I would say maybe three times a year when I see a patient with production of milk from the breast and it's varying aged women, the actual diagnosis is the mood med and it's often the atypical antipsychotic, but not necessarily. So you rule out a pituitary microadenoma and breast stimulation from their lover, a benign papilloma of the breast, and you quickly rule those three things out. And it turns out when you look at the medication list that it's the mood meds. In my patient the other day, she was 16 and she didn't have a partner. She was in rehab for addiction and was put on some new meds in the last six months, which was likely her cause. So while those mood meds are fantastic for helping control the patient's mood and helping that patient be functional in society, sometimes we come across these little inconveniences, but no worries. Easy to manage, just a couple quick tests that I need to do to rule out any more serious. Those mood meds that the patients are on help with hot flashes. One of the newest non-estrogen alternative for hot flashes is paroxetine. We're figuring out that these SSRI meds have other useful 
parts other than just mood regulation. When I was in training, one of the senior doctors would very often work with the gynecologist and give very severely depressed women some estrogen supplementations, and it worked nicely. So obviously there is a overlap or a blending or an interconnection between the psychiatric medications and the sex hormones when they go up and down. We're at the beginning of a fantastic piece of science on how these things interact together. It was so fascinating. I also hear that when someone is going through menopause, there is a huge discussion about calcium supplementation. I'd like to hear your position on calcium. What we know is that women reach their maximum bone density by age 35. And after 35, we begin to lose bone slowly. But there's an exacerbation of that bone loss immediately after menopause where we can lose up to 25% of our bone in the first two to eight years after menopause. That is when we really start to address it. Usually at age 40, we remind our patients to start increasing their calcium or focusing on their calcium in their diet. Now, a lot of 40-year-old women don't like to eat dairy because of the lactose intolerance or the calories, and so they prefer other sources, but green leafy, sardines. There are lots of things that can be taken in the diet as natural forms of calcium. Otherwise, you supplement and that's changed over the years. It was 1,200 daily, 1,200 milligrams daily. Now it's 600. But getting it in your diet is imperative. But it's also important to take vitamin D. Vitamin D has important cofactor in calcium metabolism. And a minimum of 1,000 international units daily is probably good for most women, again, starting at age 40. We are doing vitamin D levels and finding that lots of women are vitamin D deficient. And remember, vitamin D is an antioxidant and perhaps beneficial in reducing our risk for breast, ovarian, and colon cancers. So sometimes having that discussion will motivate my patients to be more uh, proactive and take their vitamins. Usually it's risk factors. So what I always call the quote-unquote skinny white smoker. So it's always a gal under 128 pounds, fairer the skin, the lighter the eyes, higher the risk. So the, the Irish girl, the and then the Asians also have an increased risk. And then smoking. Smoking is a huge risk factor for osteoporosis, chronic steroid use in asthmatics. So we look at the people who are at biggest risks for osteoporosis and encourage them to supplement. But as a global discussion, we have that with most patients over 40. And I have a hundred other questions I would love to ask you, but we're going to run out of time. But I do have one that's very important. There's always a discussion about estrogen maintaining healthy cardiovascular systems. After a woman goes through menopause and she's not making estrogen anymore, does that mean she's in trouble? Is she at higher risk? Fantastic question. The answer is yes. We know that estrogen preserves the endothelium or the lining of the blood vessels, and that's what keeps it elastic and healthy and is pretty much what protects women from having all these devastating cardiovascular events men have. However, by 10 years without estrogen, whether the ovaries are surgically removed or natural menopause, the woman converts to quote-unquote a male-like pattern. Those vessels stiffen up, those benefits are lost. So if the lady doesn't supplement her estrogen by year 10, then we don't want to supplement her after year 10 because now, based on some data in the Women's Health Initiative, we may actually increase their risk for heart attack or stroke by giving her estrogen after these blood vessels have stiffened up. So the idea is to maintain this estrogen in your body, but you should do it within the first five years. When they separated the data in women in zero to five years, in menopause, six to nine years, and then 10 years, 
it was clear that if the woman was in the first five years of loss of menses, that she gained a benefit both in cardiovascular reduction risk, Alzheimer's and dementia risk reduction, and so forth. But once we were 10 years out, the risk was equal or exceeded that of a man. Maureen Willihan is a gynecologist in Palm Beach County, Florida. We've been talking about menopause. Thank you so much for joining us. This was really quite interesting, I, I must say so. Thank you again. Anytime.